God, we look to you as our shepherd. God, that you are searching for us, seeking us out when we, when we go astray. God, that you have not given up on us yet. And you won't. God, that you are our shepherd. You care for us and you love us, God. God, be with us this morning as, as Mike brings the, the word, brings your word. Be with him and be with us. Give us ears to hear what your word has for us this morning. God, we love you. In your name I pray. Amen. Today's passage is from Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits and the righteous of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Lord, may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I pray that your spirit would make clear to us um, what you have given us through, through, through your scriptures. Um, and that we would respond in obedience and, and praise. Um, Lord, thank you for uh, your grace in all things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the home stretch with uh, Hebrews. We've been working our way through the book of Hebrews as a church, and we have two weeks left. So in today's passage, what, what we're going to see is sort of some of the major themes of Hebrews, the, the big warnings that have taken place over the course of the book, as well as some of these big, glorious, um, you know, exultant realities that the book talks about. All of that sort of going to come to a head in this uh, in this passage. So this is bring, bringing together uh, the themes of the book of Hebrews, and then next week the, uh, the author kind of says, so what? What's it going to look like now, you know, in the way that you live? So uh, that's next week. This week is sort of bringing together all these major themes. And essentially what the author does is he, put t- he puts two choices in front of us. A person can either seek the unshakable kingdom in Christ, or they can seek meaningful, lasting things elsewhere. And throughout the book, the author has reminded us again and again that the only lasting things are the things found in Christ. 
Today's sermon is, is really about uh, what theologians call, call sort of uh, the, the, the theology of the last things, about eschatology. It's about heaven and hell. It's about uh, the, the unshakable kingdom versus the, the things that are passing away. And, and what the author is going to tell us is that the person who would inherit the unshakable kingdom must do two things. He must take heed and receive. I once again forgot to make slides for this sermon. <laughs> so I apologize ahead of time. Hopefully it's pretty straightforward. It's a, it's a two-point sermon, but I'm flagging down kind of the structure of what I'm going to be doing, just, just in case you're a note-taker and, and, and benefit from that. So the person who would inherit the kingdom must take heed and receive. So first, take heed. So uh, the, 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 the verse in, uh, in verse 25, it starts with, see that, you know, see that you do this thing. Uh, in, in the Greek, it's the phrase, take heed. So that's where I'm getting the, the title of this part of the, the sermon. And he, he wants us to take heed of, of how a person inherits the unshakable kingdom. But in our time, there's a further thing that we should take heed of. I was very tempted just then, uh, in case there's any, uh, you know, encyclopedic office fans like myself um, to say, to, you must take headed of the fact that, I don't know, I guess not many of you watch The Office, never mind. So uh, we ha- there's an additional thing that in our time we have to take heed of. At the, t- at the time in which the, the author was writing, the, the author of the, the letter to the Hebrews, at, at that time, everybody agreed about sort of the nature of reality. Everybody was basically agreed that, that reality had a spiritual component, and that it was, it was heavy, it was weighty. In our time, we, in our culture, we, we don't all agree on that. And, and, and even when we do believe that, we, we often don't live like it. And so in order for this passage, a passage about heaven and hell, in order for this passage to make sense to us, we need to take heed of the spiritual nature of our world. I want to say a brief thing about this. So... Here we are, we're, we're in this, this place. We are in a world where, that, that we see, that we touch, we smell. Uh, let's call this the sensible world, okay? So in our time, there are many who assume that the sensible world is the most basic part of reality. So it's, it's the foundation, right? It's the, it's the sturdiest part, is the sensible world. And there might be spiritual realities. Lots of folks, you know, concede that possibility, there might be spiritual realities, but they're not the most basic. And whatever they are, they're very subjective. They're very kind of hazy. And, uh, and they must not be very important. Because this, the sensible world, is the most basic. And the reason why, why folks want to say this is because the sensible world is the one that you can observe in a lab. In other words, we, we tend to, to do this thing where we say, well, the only things that you can really know, the only things that you can really be confident of, are the things that scientists can predict and replicate. Right? Are you following me? The, the things that you can be certain of are the things that we can observe and predict and replicate in a lab. That's sort of the, the reality that we should all agree to. And whatever else there is, it probably doesn't exist. And if it does, it's not very important. So are you following me so far? Is right? Okay. So I think that that is pride going before a fall. So when someone says that spiritual realities are probably false and certainly unimportant, 
and they say the reason is basically because you can't observe them, that's sort of like a microbiologist saying that the internet probably doesn't exist, and if it does, it's certainly not very important because you can't observe it under a microscope. You're not using the right instrument. Right? So if, if the reality isn't going to bend itself to your method of discovering it, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It means you're using the wrong method. And so I think in our time, we have all just sort of implicitly agreed to, to hubris, to pride that goes before a fall, by saying that this reality is the most basic, when all the wisdom of the ancients before us disagree. When we go out into the world, we don't experience it as just a, a world of, of valueless uh, scientific facts. We experience the world as a place charged with meaning. So we, 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 we learn about a stillborn baby, and we say, that's bad. Heartbreaking. This is an evil that this happens. We, we, we find a lifelong friend who makes it from childhood all the way to, to rocking on the front porch in our old age. We say, this is good. Good in a visceral way. Good in a way that doesn't just serve some kind of utility for propagating the species. This is good unto itself. On a sad day, the smile of a child comes across disruptively joyful. We experience the world as though it's porous. Right? So, so like, a, like a membrane that something is passing through, that something more permanent, more meaningful is passing through the membrane of our world. That's how we experience this place. That's because that's what's actually happening. The scriptures tell us that the reason why we experience the world this way is because there is a spiritual reality, and it, not the sensible world, is the most basic. We are the shadows. So if we, if, so if, if you aren't agreed on that, if, if, you haven't, if you haven't allowed for that fact, this passage isn't going to make any sense. But if that's the vision of reality that, that, that you're convinced of, this passage is going to warn and it's going to encourage like nothing else. So let's get into it. What this passage lets us in on is that history is heading toward a a final climactic moment. Human history is going to get summed up in a final climactic moment. You could call it a catastrophe. Human history is going to culminate in a judgment. And and so here's how, so this is sort of how a judgment works. So when you're in a courtroom, when a a judge passes judgment, he's, you know, let's say he he announces that that the accused is guilty, right? So he's actually doing two things. That, that same moment, the, the judgment moment, is both saying this man is guilty, but at the very same time, it's also saying that this man's case is vindicated, right? So it's really doing two things. It's condemning one and vindicating the other. So in saying this man is guilty, it's saying to the other, the other person, yours was the right side. God's judgment is like that. There's this catastrophic judgment coming at the, at the end of human history, and it's going to be condemnation for some and vindication for others. So the, the condemned will be those of us who have chose to hold on to the passing things, and the vindicated will be those of us who chose to hold on to the lasting things. And the reason why is because the passing things are going to pass, and the lasting things are going to last. 
So whatever you've hold, held on to, you go with them. And in this case, the lasting thing, things are unseen. So the author describes God's judgment as a shaking of heaven and earth. So this is the image of catastrophe, of terror. And the text says that this shaking is going to bring about the passing away of heaven and earth. So it says that the things that will be made are going to be the things that, that are shaken, and whatever is shaken will be removed. So here he actually is quoting from a, a book in the Old Testament. So this is one of the minor prophets. His name is, it's called Haggai. So Haggai was writing and preaching after Israel's exile in Babylon. So the, 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 you know, the, sort of the capital city, Jerusalem, got sacked by Babylon. The temple was destroyed. This was the, the, the pivotal tragedy of Israel's history. Everybody got taken away, and then, and then eventually they were, they were released, and they were brought back. So Haggai's writing to the, the, the groups of folks who first are making their way back into Jerusalem, and they're discouraged. They come back to the city, and it's decimated. The, the temple is gone. All the old glory has been consumed. And so Haggai starts preaching, specifically in this passage, to, to two men. We're, we're getting the writings that he wrote to two men, the, the high priest and the governor. And here's what he says. He says that God is going to establish the city once again. God's going to bring back the temple. And it's going to be so glorious that it's going to outpace all of the glory that came before it. It's going to make, make the best of Israel's days look like the, its darkest days. It's going to be the, the best thing that's coming. And it's going to come after this catastrophe. Here's the quote. For thus says the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. Now, uh, the author of Hebrews, he's living in a day where there is a new temple, and it's amazing. It's Herod's temple, it's, it's huge, it's incredible, it's shining. And yet the author here in Hebrews, he, he's looking back at this, at this preaching of Haggai, and he says, oh, it's not referring to Herod's temple. This passage is about the, the final things of human history. This passage is about what God is going to do in the last days. The author of Hebrews reads this passage from Haggai, and he says, this is talking about the final catastrophe at the end of history, where God will shake creation, and everything that is his will be gathered up, and everything that is not will pass away. The passing things will pass, and the lasting things will last. So to, to get this across, one theologian, he talks about, you know, what if I went outside and I had a marble, you know, a, a beautiful marble, and I took a bunch of mud, and I just packed it around the marble into this big, giant mud clod, and then I left it out in the sun for a couple days. Now, I could go out, and I could lift up what's now this giant dirt clod, and I could shake it, and as I'm shaking it, it will just turn into dust. All of it will just suddenly start breaking apart as I'm shaking it, until finally all that's left again is what's mine, the marble. The, the author of Hebrews is saying that that is what God's judgment is going to be like. That, that, that the judgment of God is going to, to shake everything that has been made. And whatever is passing away will pass. And what will remain is going to be whatever is the Lord's. So what is it that passes away? 
The text uh, says that what is shaken, so, so what's passing away, is everything that's been made. So it's, this is the same idea that shows up in the, final, in the final chapters of the New Testament, where it says that the old creation will pass away, and a new creation will come into being. So everything that has been made is what's passing away. The old creation, along with all sin and all death, and all, and all those of us who have clung to the passing things, and all the lasting things are carried over. Now, the mistake that a lot of people make at this point is thinking that what passes away is, is physical life, right? So we, we make this mistake of saying, okay, everything that's been made, that's what's passing away. Therefore, uh, you know, that means bodies, that means, uh, you know, water, that means the things of the world entirely have no place in what's coming. And so we, we start to get this idea of, of, uh, of, the new creation, as though it's kind of like heaven in a Looney Tunes cartoon. <laughs> you, know, you know, like someone gets too close to a bomb when the fuse is going off, and like they drop, and then this little like white-robed version of themselves, uh, you know, floats up, and, and they take their harp, and they start playing, right? So that, that, that's what we're, but that's kind of, I mean, it's, I'm being facetious, but that's kind of what we're left with a lot of times when we misunderstand what the Bible is saying. We have this idea like, well, the, the spiritual things are left, and the spiritual things are, are wispy and, and ghostly. And, and so, uh, you know, Elmer Fudd got too close to the cannon, and he floated up, you know. And that, that's what awaits us. Praise God, you know. <laughs> and so it's, it's really kind of a depressing thing. But, um, and, and it's interesting, too, to even look at the, the Looney Tunes cartoons and, and what happens. So they, they die, and the spirit, what does the spirit do? It floats, right? So it's like a bubble coming out of the bottom of a lake bed. You know, it, it's, it's lighter than the world around it. It's less substantial than the world around it. So it floats, right? The Bible begs to differ. The scriptural writers beg to differ. In fact, uh, the, the authors of the scriptures flipped, flipped the script on that. They would say that spiritual reality is the heavier reality. That spiritual reality is the more substantial reality. We, if, if, if one of us is, if, if the physical, if the sensible world is, is, is one, is either the water or the bubble, we're the bubble. The sensible world is the bubble. We, this is the less real reality. So when God brings together a new creation, when it says in the final chapters of the New Testament that heaven and earth are brought together, that the spiritual and the physical are going to be brought into an entirely new thing. It isn't a wispier place. It is heavy with glory. C.S. Lewis uh, had it right in The Great Divorce. I, I highly recommend The Great Divorce. It's an allegory about heaven and hell. Um, so it's, it's sort of an entire book contemplating this verse in Hebrews. So Lewis imagines a bus tour. <laughs> he imagines a bus tour that's going out of hell into heaven, and uh, all the folks on the, on the bus are, are sort of quibbling with each other, and, and they don't really want to be there, and, uh, and they have this very high view of themselves. And they're all very surprised to realize that the entirety of hell takes up a tiny crack in the floor of heaven that is hidden away in this barely noticeable crack in the ground of heaven. So the bus comes up, and they all step out and realize that the grass cuts their feet. And, and Lewis's line at that moment is just to say, reality is harsh to the feet of shadows. He's getting across the, the same idea, that the, that the lasting things are the things that last. The, the, the thing that, that, that God is about to do is an entirely new thing, and it is a heavier reality. It is the, the ultimate reality. So what we need to take from this as Christians is that 
when we talk about heaven, when we talk about the new creation, we need to make sure we have the right image in our heads. This is not the rejection of everything that is most real in our lives. It is the fulfillment of everything that is most real in our lives. We read the scriptures and we hear that we have to hold on to the things of God over against the things of the world. And, and oftentimes the first thing that we say is, I need to pray more. Maybe, right? You, you might need to. So I'm not denying that. And, and much, much prayer is, is essential for, for a Christian. But you might also be somebody who's missing the point. If, you're, if, if you hear that, that heaven is the spiritual reality and therefore I need to do more spiritual kind of thing, kinds of things, and you start to feel this discouragement where you're like, you know, my, my work is unspiritual, um, I'm spending so much time with my family, that's unspiritual, then you might be missing the point. Heaven is not the rejection of real life, it is the fulfillment of real life. It isn't the end of everything that's meaningful about our work. It's the end of toil. It's the end of futility. But it's the affirmation of everything that's meaningful about good work. It isn't the dissolving of family. Heaven is the ultimate homecoming. Haggai, in his passage, he describes how the treasures of the nations are brought into this permanent temple. So in that sense, it means that that even culture itself the cultures of all these civilizations that have gone before and are happening now, culture itself is not rejected, it is redeemed. Which means that the best of the human inheritance will be shown to have been good, not because it was ours, but because all along it was the Lord's. That its goodness was a donation of God, and it is fulfilled in the new creation. Which means that whatever we do unto the Lord in work, in family, in friendship, in worship, will remain through the fire. Whatever we give up in the name of Christ will be made back and redeemed in surprising ways. The new creation is the marriage of heaven and earth. The spiritual and the material come together and the result is what Paul calls the permanent dwelling. We've set aside the tent. We're headed to the permanent dwelling. Does that make sense? So take heed, because only the lasting things, the lasting things are only found in Christ. It is this permanent temple that Christ is inaugurating. There is no religion, no spirituality, no ethic, no option, no relationship that will pass through the catastrophe if it is not bound up in Christ. There's a moment in The Great Divorce where one of the, the members of hell is, is sort of needling one of the angels who's having none of it. And, uh, and he, he's trying to, to, to get philosophical about religion, with, to argue religion with one of the angels. And the angel turns to him and, and says, like, we don't speak of religion here anymore. We speak only of Christ. At the beginning of today's passage, the, the author says that outside of Christ is only a blazing fire and darkness and gloom. What, what he's doing is he's, he sort of links together all these references to, uh, to the moment where Israel is encountering God at Mount Sinai. Right? So you'll recall from our Exodus series, you know, the, there's smoke on the mountain. It's this terrifying thing. There's, there's a, a, a voice. Um, the, the author narrates this in a really interesting way, though. So... Let me reread it just so it's fresh in our minds. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. So um, 
there's something really interesting happening here. If I'm writing a story, let's say I'm writing a story about a, a, a man who's going to come home to realize he's been kicked out of his house. So uh, I, there's two ways that I can narrate that scene, and they do a different thing on a literary level. So I can either say the, the boy came home to see his father slamming the door in his face. So that's very personal, right? By, by adding that bit about the father, I'm, I'm emphasizing that there's this, this personal, tragic element to this. But what if I said the boy came home to find a door slammed in his face? That hits us a different way. It's, it's impersonal. It's like it, it, it emphasizes that the person, that there's a, that there's, there's a, a break in terms of the relationship. So it's, it's as though this is happening independent of a person. Does that make sense? What the author of Hebrews does here is the same move on a literary level. When Israel was at the foot of Sinai, they saw the terror of God, but there was also a comfort because the person of God was there. Right? So they could, they could endure something of the terror because they, they knew that, but yeah, but God's here and, and we're his people. What the author of Hebrews does here on a literary level is very subtle but really, really important. He, he re-narrates Sinai with God gone. Because he's telling us that if, if we aren't looking to Christ, then all we have is the terror and not the person. All we have is the terror and not the person. The presence of the Lord is with Christ. Anywhere else is only the terror, but the person is gone. And so we have to take heed. The second thing that the author tells us to do is to receive. So the author says that it's not the terror of condemnation that awaits those in Christ. In Christ, we've become part of an unshakable kingdom, the, the marble at the center of the dirt clod. And the author compares the Christian life uh, to, so he says that, that a person's life is sort of like a journey to one of two mountains. Either it's Mount Sinai, and what you're going to find there is the terror without the person, or your life is going to be like a pilgrimage to Mount Zion. And he says the Christian life is a pilgrimage to Mount Zion. And he has all these images that he wants to leave us with to communicate what it is that we are headed to. And I want to work through them one by one. So first, Mount Zion. If Christians are on a pilgrimage to Mount Zion, what are we looking forward to? So at first he uses three images to get this this point across, the point of of, uh, what he calls the heavenly Jerusalem. So he uses Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was situated on this giant hill called Mount Zion. And, And... uh, the folks who lived there, uh, what was so important about it was that you had an entire society of people centered around the presence of God. You would go to, to Jerusalem and you would say, God is here. Like, like, how blessed are all these people who live there? They, they live with God, right? So that's, that's Jerusalem. The, the, the ending of the Bible tells us that the entire new creation is going to be like a new Jerusalem. The point is that God is dwelling in the midst of his people. What we're headed to is society bustling around God as its center. But instead of it just being one city out of the entirety of the world, it's the entire world that's become the city of God. Uh, There's a poet named Gerard Manley Hopkins. He, uh, he, He describes, in one of his poems, he describes how the world is charged with the grandeur of God, which flames out like shining from shook foil. In other words, it's like light when you shake foil and the light reflects off of it. In the new creation, the, the, the grandeur of God will be impossible to miss. 
the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The next thing he mentions is innumerable angels. So the scriptures tell us that God's presence is constantly accompanied by spiritual beings that we call angels. Um, and they're sort of like the, the courtiers in a court. So you can imagine the court of a king, and he's going to be surrounded by all these people who are like in, in splendid clothing, and you know, they, they're very important people, and, and he's surrounded by all of them, and their splendor emphasizes the fact that his splendor is even greater. Right? So it's this overwhelming experience to walk into the court of a king because you're, you're surrounded by not only the, the king, but, but the whole surroundings are, are built to emphasize how great he is. And the courtiers are there to do that. Now, uh, if you see a courtier by themselves, it's probably because they're not in their, their place. Right? So if a courtier is off by himself, it's because he's been sent to deliver a message, something like that. You know, so in the old stories, a, a member of the court might go out to deliver a message. But that, he doesn't belong out there in the country. And so if you were to follow that courtier back to where he belongs, he's going to walk back into the court of the king, and there's going to be way more of him. Right? So there's going to be way more courtiers in the court of the king. It's an interesting thing to, to realize that this is sort of like what the angels are. If you see an angel off by themselves, one or two of them, it's because they're not where they belong. They're delivering a message. But if you follow them back, you're going to find that there's a lot more of them where they came from. And they're all surrounding the presence of God. It's an interesting thing to note that when Jesus comes to earth, he is announced by the whole host of heaven. Why is that? The courtiers go where the king is. Right? And so what, what the scriptures tell us is that we are, we are being ushered into the court of the king himself. And so when the, the mention of innumerable angels is a sign that God is with us. He, we know he's with us because he's brought his entourage, <laughs> right? And so God is with us. And, and if, we're, if we are with the entourage, that means that we are in the court of the king. The next thing he says is that, that, there, that we go to festal gathering. So he adds this to tell us the, the, uh, the atmosphere of heaven. It's a sad thing that oftentimes when we imagine heaven, it's this very sort of dour thing. You know, like, like playing a harp on a cloud is, is horrible, uh, right? I mean... That sounds awful. And I know most of us don't, we don't think that way, but we still, we think of this sort of like really sterile, you know, uh, maybe you don't, maybe you're more theologically accurate in your imagination, but many, you know, many think of this wispy place. Um, and it's very sort of like solemn and it's like, man, this is so boring. Um, that, that is not the atmosphere of heaven. The atmosphere of heaven is festival. Joseph Pieper is a Catholic thinker. He wrote a book about festival and he asks the question, why do we have festivals? As, human, like, as humans, why, why does this make any sort of sense? And he thinks that festivals make less and less sense in a secularized world. He, he thinks that the whole purpose of festival is worship. That, you know, that we tend to, to, to think about holiday, festival, vacation as, I'm going to get refreshed so I can go back and do more work. Okay, that, that makes work the point of your life. That's not what festival is for. Festival, vacation, holiday is to remind you what you're actually for. It's to remind you that you're made for something higher than work. That, that, that when, we, when we have festival, really have festival, what we're doing is we are affirming the gift of creation, which you can't do without acknowledging the giver. And so in, in heaven, heaven is festive. It is not dour, it is not drab, it is not boring, it is busy with festivity. Heaven is presence unwrapped. 
It is fireworks lit off. It is an Oktoberfest beer stein running over. It is a holiday at the lake. Next thing, we go to the assembly. He mentions two things, but I think these are both referring to the same reality. First, he mentions the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Then later on, he mentions the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What the, what's happening here is, he, is he's using one thing to describe the church that's here and now, and he's using another thing to, to talk about all the saints that have gone before us. Um, theologians call uh, the first one the visible church. So all of us here, this is the visible church. Um, and then there's the invisible church, all the saints who are awaiting resurrection. So it's sort of like when you sign up for ancestry and you do all that work and, and you, you get to see this giant family tree and you get this sense that you are a part of something. This is my tree. You're a part of all these people who have gone before you and they've passed along this family to you and you're going to pass it along to the next generation. But all of you are part of the one tree. The church is our tree. The saints in the Old Covenant, to the prophets, to the apostles, to the early church, to the fathers and their people, up through the spread across the continents, to the militant church still responding to God's call, the church is our tree. And the saints who have gone before us are not gone. In Christ, nothing that dies is ever truly gone. The next thing we go to is to God, the judge of all. What's the greatest gift that God can give you? Himself. The greatest gift that God can give you is himself. So it's interesting to ask to come out this to, to come out this from this angle. So what makes a good thing good? What makes a good thing good? The scriptures tell us that that anything that we recognize as good is a is like a donation from God. It's good because it somehow brings to us a small glimpse of himself. The good news of heaven is not that we get more good things. The good news of heaven is that we get the giver. Psalm 119 says that God is good in all of his goodness. Psalm 16 says that in God are the paths of life. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. All of us in this, in this life, we, we have very, very deep longings. Longings for relationship, longings for romance, longings for a certain place, longings for home. One of the the most important steps in Christian development is to realize that all of these longings, while meaningful here, they're ultimately longings for, for God. That each of these longings only find their fulfillment in the best thing. God is home. God is is the one that we are, he's the one, right? Like, I'm longing for the one. He's the one, right? Like, he, he's, he, he is the fulfillment of all our deepest longings. Whatever we long for here is, at bottom, a longing for God. And in Christ, it will be fulfilled. And then finally, we get Jesus. So in, in getting God, we get the image of God, Jesus himself. Jesus is given to us as our mediator. Uh, in, in other words, he, he, like a priest, has gone between us and God, but he's completed the work of a priest. And so a, a, a priest's work is finished in Christ, and we get Christ himself. And it has this interesting line where it says that the, the blood of Christ speaks to us a better word than the blood of Abel. It's kind of a weird image, but see, so here's what it's referencing. 
In one of the very early stories of the scriptures, there's a man, Abel, who's murdered by his brother Cain. And when God confronts Cain, he says that the blood of Abel cries out to me. Okay, so what's Abel's blood saying? He's saying, judge. He's saying, I want justice. That's what the blood of Abel says, is make this right. And so when God confronts Cain, he, he, he says, the blood of Abel is calling out to me. Right? Like, justice needs to be done. But the blood of Jesus is said to speak a better word. That the blood of Jesus says something better than what Abel's blood said. Abel's blood cried for justice. Jesus' blood announces forgiveness. Abel's blood uh, cries for revenge. Jesus' blood announces redemption. So when, 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 when Abel's blood cries out to God, it's, it's sort of like it's saying, you, you need to do something about this. Jesus' blood said, I just did. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because it is through Jesus that we receive the forgiveness of sins and are ushered into the family of God. Uh, Here's where I want to end. So we have all these things in Christ. And this is a future reality. That's when faith becomes sight. But we have access to these things now. So right now, we are said to be part of the heavenly city. We're on a pilgrimage there, but we're citizens there too. It's like we're part of a distant colony and we're returning home. The angels join us now in our worship. We don't speak the creed just to each other. We don't sing just together. We, we, don't, we don't take in the word of God just together. The angels are with us in festal gathering. The festivity of heaven reaches into the despair of now. Every time that you practice Christian hospitality, you announce that there's something to be joyful about. Anytime we sing, we announce that there's something to sing about. The church marches and the church awaits now. We approach the throne of God with confidence now, and Jesus is ours now. We have these things in part And one day, we will have them fully. And what I want to leave us on is is, is this. All of this is because of God's grace. If there's one thing that we fail to recognize, it's just how free God's grace actually is. When the text says what it looks like to receive the kingdom, it says that we receive it with, with gratitude and worship. That we receive the kingdom with gratitude and worship. So think about that. What that's saying is that with all these things that have been announced to us, the heavenly city coming to us, the the innumerable angels and festal gathering, the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and the the spirits of of the righteous made perfect, God the judge of all, Jesus the mediator of a new covenant whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, it's given all to you, and the response that would just delight the heart of God is for you to receive it and to say, thanks. What more can be said? Just thanks. God's grace is free. And, and the, the right response to, to this enormous gift is not to try to, to start looking under your couch cushions for what change you can find to pay him back. It's to just say, 
thanks. And so let's say thanks to the Lord. What I'm going to do right now is actually invite Frank uh, up. He's, he's one of our elders. Um, and what he's going to do is just, just pray for us, and he'll, he'll talk, talk more about that. So rather than, than me ending the sermon with prayer, I'm going to invite Frank up, and he's going to, um, he's going to spend some time in prayer with us. Good morning. Again, my name is Frank Anderson. I'm one of the uh, bearded elders here at Trinity. So this is a, um, I'd like to pray for us as a body. And uh, if you'd bow your heads and join me in prayer. Jesus, we, we thank you for being so patient with us. Would you write your word on our hearts, Father, that we may recognize the joy and the awe of you and your covenant with us. Lord, be our God and help us to be your people. Lord, would you give this this body a revelation of the unshakable kingdom that we are to receive. And we praise you for this, this undeserved gift. Father, And we stand in fear and amazement at your power and gracious love for us. So, Lord, continue to be our strength and our guide. Amen. So, uh, at this time, would the uh, communion servers please come forward? And um, as we transition into a time of communion, I would encourage us all to take inventory of ourselves.